Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us now commit this time to God, even as we prepare our hearts to receive from the preaching of God's Word. Let us pray. Sovereign Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word centered on the gospel in Jesus Christ. Even during the season of Lent, we ask, O oh God, that you would quicken our heart towards you, to be hungry for your word, and importantly, to be enabled through your Holy Spirit to have a heart that is steadfast under you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, this morning, I will be expounding and applying what we learn from Scripture, specifically from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 until verse 11. So if you have your Bibles with you, kindly open them together with me right now to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 4, reading from verse 1. And I will be reading from the English Standard Version, yeah? Let me begin. Verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise to Christ our Lord. Now we are in the beginning of the season of Lent. Ash Wednesday has just come and gone. It's the first Sunday in the season of Lent. And we want to focus this morning on this particular passage that is very relevant to us. What is the season of Lent? Well, it's essentially a period whereby the disciple of Jesus Christ ponders afresh, reviews again, what Jesus' public ministry was all about, not only as a paradigm, but as a form of worship to review one's life in light of the path of the cross. 
And for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, we do well to start, isn't it, obviously, with Jesus at the very outset of his ministry. And our particular passage this morning is taken at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, the first few chapters. And prior to chapter 4, verse 1, we see Jesus being described in chapter 1 as someone who comes from the lineage, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, linked to the lineage of King David, linked also all the way back to Abraham. And then we see thereafter there are themes of how Jesus' ministry and the gospel that is coming into the world would emphasize not only the kingship of Jesus as the God who is with us, ruling over us, but as the one who keeps the covenant of God, who is the only one in stark contrast to all the other children of Abraham, especially in the nation of Israel. All of them failed, but Jesus, who is the son of Abraham, of which God promised from years ago at the very beginning in the book of Genesis that through the seed of Abraham, the whole world will be blessed. And this Jesus comes both from the lineage of King David, of whom there is great expectancy for a Davidic kingdom that will last forever in the rule of God, but also importantly for us to understand how the promises of God in the covenant that he made with Abraham for Israel and the world are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we also see that it's very interesting that this particular narrative, so familiar to all of us, isn't it? We talk about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. It's actually sandwiched between the public baptism of Jesus and the public ministry of Jesus himself. You would have expected, if you didn't know the narrative of this passage in the gospel, you would have expected that Jesus, having been so publicly glorified at least yeah, in the sight of John, we see in chapter 3, verse 13, isn't it, that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John the Baptist to be baptized. And as he is baptized, we see that something happens, isn't it? We see in verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. The heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You would expect that with such a glorified narrative, such a, a majestic setting, you would think that the next thing would be to go into public ministry, to go forth having received the mandate from the loving Father, having experienced the power of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and now the Son of God, you would expect, would go straight away into the Galilean region, Straight away, going to Capernaum by the sea, as we will see in verse 12 of chapter 4. But no, what happens instead? We see in chapter 4, verse 1, in the immediate aftermath of the baptism of Jesus, having been so majestically affirmed by his Father, having experiencing the coming down of Holy Spirit on himself, we see that this Holy Spirit in chapter 4, verse 1, leads Jesus into the wilderness, a place where there is no one, a place whereby you could argue is 
dangerous, away from civilization, open, exposed to the elements, to the wild animals. But here we see in chapter 4, verse 1, that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let's not forget that even as we look at this uh, rather provocative character, the devil himself, this slanderer, we see that it is actually part of God's plan. That Jesus going into the wilderness is not something that is involuntary, something that was not planned. It was all within the plan of God because he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, not into the marketplace, not into public ministry, but into the wilderness. What for? To be tempted, to be tested by the devil. What would this testing uh, entail? What is it really all about? And we see it being unpacked in the subsequent verses. Now, Jesus being in the wilderness in verse 1 and further described as something that he does, this activity of being in the wilderness is therefore that of fasting, and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, many Bible commentators cannot resist as they see there is a link here between the intentional act of Jesus being led into the wilderness to fast for 40 days with that of a certain nation that many centuries ago also experienced in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, the symbolism of the number 40, whether it is years or days here, uh, is actually quite significant, yeah? Because if you talk about the history of the people of Israel, if you remember having experienced firsthand the power of God, so majestic, so awesome, putting to fear all their enemies, and now they were all going to the promised land, something that God had promised Abraham, something God had promised their forefathers, going into the land that was flowing with milk and honey. But we see that tragically, a journey that would have taken just a very short while ended up being a judgment of 40 years in the wilderness due to unbelief. For Jesus, this act of being led into the wilderness to fast for 40 days was also going to be a time of testing. For the people of Israel, it was a time of testing to humble them, to see whether they would really trust in the God who had just spectacularly delivered them from slavery from the hands of the Egyptians. But way back then in the book of Exodus, we see that they have failed miserably, resulting in 40 years of wandering in the desert until an entire generation dies out due to judgment for their lack of faith. Jesus, in his fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, also experienced deprivation like the nation of Israel. He would have experienced what we come to see as hunger, isn't it? You see very clearly at the end of verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And it was something that the people of Israel went through as well. But we will see later how their reaction becomes a negative warning, not only for the readers of the Gospel of Matthew, but something that Jesus would not be part of at all. He, in fact, he would be the opposite of the nation of Israel when the devil tempts him similarly. So at the end of the fasting of 40 days and 40 nights, you would expect that he would have uh, deprived himself of certain things required to nourish him physically. He would be focused on prayer, 
He will be someone who is preparing for his public ministry, culminating in the cross, and of course, thereafter, his glorious resurrection. But it is at the beginning of this ministry, even before launching into the public space, that he practices the discipline of fasting. Instead of indulging himself with great expectation and anticipation for public ministry, he deprives himself to focus spiritually, to focus his mind, his heart, his will. And the testing begins when he is hungry. So never ever downplay uh, the hunger, the appetite that you have. I don't just mean physically or just when it comes to food, but when it comes to that of the flesh, when it comes to that of what you want, what you yearn for. And here we see as Jesus deprives himself, at least biologically in terms of nourishment, the tempter comes. It's very interesting, isn't it, that uh, this, this tempter is, of course, initially introduced to us in verse 1, in the second half of verse 1, as the devil. Now, we know the devil is not, that's not his name. Yeah? The word devil is, is, uh, is defined in some of our Greek lexicons to mean the slanderer, the one who accuses, who wants to undermine people, who wants to uh, character assassinate people. And we see that this nature of the devil, of, of whom we know that Jesus calls him Satan, yeah, in verse 10, this character has actually been that of old. Eh? It's nothing new. All the way back in the book of Genesis, we see that he or it, however you want to refer to the devil, he has been doing this from the very beginning, starting even with Eve, way back, to cast doubt on the character of God, to provoke God into doing something which he feels God should do but won't do, almost like a challenge. We see that also happening in the book of Job, for example. So this slanderer, diabolos, the devil, as he sees Jesus fasting, coming to the end, being hungry, he comes to, in verse 3, the tempter, the one who tests Jesus, says to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, the first thing we need to understand is that when the tempter, when the devil says this to Jesus, number one, there are two things we need to understand. The first thing is, when he says, if you are the Son of God, he's not casting doubt on the identity of Jesus. Rather, he is saying, well, since you are the Son of God, do this. So that's the first thing we need to understand first. He's not engaging in an investigative conversation to say, are you really the son of God? You know, if you're really the son of God, the son of God will be able to do this. So prove yourself. No, he's not saying to Jesus to prove himself. Uh, from the literary flow, that is irrelevant, isn't it? Because God the Father had just affirmed him by saying, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. In chapter 3, verse 17. But when the devil, the tempter, the one who seeks to thwart Jesus, whether he knows from the outset it is impossible or not. The tempter says, if you are the Son of God, that means you say you are the Son of God. Well, at least through the eyes of the devil, he says, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So it is actually a provocative challenge, not an investigative inquiry towards the identity of Jesus. But it goes deeper. He's insinuating that if you are truly Son of God, the evidence of the Son of God is to do this. 
to command stones to become loaves of bread in light of your hunger. And it's interesting that, that having uh, addressed that this is no longer a question but a challenge, you find that the devil actually uses the word command these stones. The word command in the Greek actually carries the tone of an imperative, uh, double meaning. Huh? When you say command, the devil is actually commanding Jesus to say command. The audacity of the devil to think that he can tell the Son of God what to do. But that is exactly what he does. The tempter, the devil says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, I command you to command these stones to become loaves of bread. To show forth your authority, to show forth your power. From the devil's perspective, that is the implication of what it means to be the Son of God. But what is the Son of God's response to this provocation? A failed one, even from the very outset, we can see. Doomed to failure. Because he responds to the devil, the devil's foolish challenge, the devil's audacity to even try to command the Son of God by answering him this way in verse 4. He says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let us unpack this, this response of Jesus very quickly. Yeah? There are two things again. Firstly, Jesus answers this verbal provocation by referring to what is written. He's alluding to the written word of God, one that has stood the test of time, one that contains the very heart of God revealed to the nation of Israel that has been codified, that is now authoritative, that leads the nation of Israel, that also shows the hope of Israel to come. And it is now come, personified in Jesus Christ. And as he is about to embark on his public ministry, the devil is instead interested to challenge him and say, no, the Son of God should be known for this. Power. Self-sustenance. But Jesus responds and he says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Jesus uses the phrase, It is written, it is not just in a descriptive tone to say to the devil, like, Hey, are you forgetting something? The Bible says this. No, it's not just that. Jesus actually is saying, and this is where this phrase, it is written, carries this implication that it stands written. What does it mean? What is, why is there a nuance of meaning uh, in, in the change of word as in, instead of it is written, you say it stands written. Meaning that it carries continual authority. And so, the, and so Jesus is not just telling the devil is there, but he's reminding the devil, you are going against the authority of God because it stands written in His Word that the priority of life is not just about immediate sustenance. And we will come to it later on how the devil actually challenges again the Son of God to showcase His power once more in the second one. We'll come to that soon. But firstly here, Jesus is telling the devil, the tempter, the slanderer, Satan himself, He's telling him, this is written 
it stands in authority. And this is what I have to say, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So on, the, on one level, yes, you can say it is codified, and we know that this, this uh, quotation can be actually taken from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, when the Lord, Yahweh, reminds uh, the people of God through Moses that when they went through the experience of the wilderness, and this was to a new generation that had survived the wilderness experience, the Lord was nevertheless reminding the people, who this new generation of Israel who were on the cusp of the promised land, that their experience of the wilderness was a time of testing so that they would know ultimately who their trust is, what they really need to be sustained. And it's not so much the bread, but the giver of the bread. And so, Jesus is not just describing what is in Scripture, but he's actually implying its significance to the devil and saying, no, I do not need to command these stones to become bread just to satisfy my short-term hunger. Instead, his priority, as we see here, is that to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's not forget, this whole experience of Jesus thus far up to chapter 4 is about Jesus' journey to bring about the kingdom of heaven on earth, to pardon sins of humanity leading to the cross. And so he is prioritizing every word that comes from the mouth of God, at least in regard to his mission in regard to his model, in regard to his way to the cross. And it will not be characterized by self-indulgence. It will not be characterized by misuse of his resources and his capabilities. But it is characterized by unconditional, wholehearted obedience and adherence in love to everything that comes out from the mouth of so for us, at this juncture, let me just pause as we try to, to reflect on that significance for us today. First thing, sometimes we, we may struggle, isn't it? I've heard of, of uh, fellow believers who say, you know, if God is so powerful, why can't he do supernatural miracles every day? You know, if, if God is so great, if Jesus is so loving, why can't he heal every disease right now? Why can't he eradicate poverty straight away? Dare we, whether intentionally or not, provoke the Lord by saying it, by saying, if you are the Son of God, solve all these things now at a large scale. Many people misunderstand the mission of Jesus. They did misunderstand it even in the time of, of Christ in the Gospels. They were expecting political deliverance. They were expecting a time of prosperity. But Jesus came to deal with the core of humanity's issue, which is that of sin. How about us today, when we talk about Jesus whom we serve? Have we been guilty of insinuating to Jesus that, Jesus, I, I know what you did on the cross, but I think as the Son of God, you should do more. We may not be as... Or, he disrespectful like the devil to come to him head on and say, if you are the son of God, do this, do that. But could we have been guilty at some point in our life when we pray to him? 
when we say that, God, your plan for us is not good enough. I want instant gratification. I want instant blessing on my terms. Since you are the Son of God, give that to me. I hope we never come to that. And if we have come close to that, there is still time to repent. Do not provoke the Lord. His way is the best. Understand that He came to address the root cause of our fallenness and sin. And it is not to be misunderstood with Jesus as just purely being a miracle worker for our temporal issues. He has come to solve an eternal, significant issue for us in giving us life. Secondly, we see, having been um, successfully rebutted, the devil doesn't give up because we see in verse 5, isn't it? The devil takes him to the holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written. So now the devil is, is, is uh, being very cheeky. I'm putting this really, really mildly. Yeah? He's actually being very malicious. He says to the son of God, if you are son of God, throw yourself down. And he adds this clause. He adds this phrase. For it is written. Since Jesus said it is, he stands on God's word, well, the devil says, let me also throw in God's word. Lah. The devil also knows his scripture, but we know that he twists and perverts it, as we will see Jesus' response very soon. Well, in any case, the devil proceeds to quote Psalm 91, excerpts from Psalm 91, when he says to Jesus, well, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the devil is now poking, pro provoking Jesus from another angle. If at first he says, as a son of God, you can satisfy your hunger, you know, through the supernatural act of commanding stones to become bread, he fails because this is, Jesus is not interested in that. He has a bigger plan. Now he says, well, since uh, I've already addressed your capability, let me now talk about your richness, the fact that you have people a legion of angels who are loyal to you, of course, with the exception of Satan and his other fallen angels. And so he says to the Son of God, throw yourself down, show me, show me your cavalry, show me your military might, show me that they have your back. And he quotes Psalm 91. Interestingly, if you are a, a good Bible reader, you will know that the devil is misquoting Psalm 91 because Psalm 91, particularly these two verses, um, actually is written within the context of threats. When the psalmist faces threats to his life, when the psalmist faces danger, imminent danger, he runs to the Lord and he is reminded that God will protect him. The devil is not telling Jesus to do this in the face of danger. The devil is asking Jesus to just showcase it lah. You know, just show us that you're powerful. Show off. Boast in it. He twists scripture. Uh, good reminder for us, yeah? Never take a verse out of context. Uh, if I want to be uh, a bit more provocative, it is the favorite pastime of the devils. Never do that, okay? Always read a passage in its context. 
And Jesus sees this immediately and he counters this because he knows, yeah, you're quoting scripture, but you don't understand the integrity of scripture because Jesus says in verse 7 to him, again it is written. So Jesus is consistent, yeah? At first the devil uses verbal provocation, now he uses scripture and twists it, but Jesus has always been standing firm on the authority of God's word, written, spoken. And Jesus says to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus, again, has a twofold uh, implication for the devil when he uses this reply. Number one, yes, it is indeed written, it is written in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Again, the background of that passage is when Moses reminds this new generation who are on the cusp of the promised land, he says to them, don't be like your forefathers who tested the Lord when they were thirsty. And that place is, is known as Massah. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can, you can uh, actually uh, uh, see that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which alludes to an event in Exodus, the book of Exodus. And so Jesus here quotes scripture again, from Deuteronomy significantly again, uh, as, as it's significant because it is about how the Israelites have to learn from that wilderness experience of judgment. And Jesus is just finishing that wilderness experience, albeit successfully, faithfully, and obediently. Okay? And Jesus rebuts the devil and he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That means you don't provoke God as the Israelites did, as you are doing, Satan. You do not put the Lord your God to the test. You don't be presumptuous about his providence. You do not misuse God's name in vain. And that is what Jesus says to the devil. And now we see for the third time, again, we see huh, the devil is relentless. The devil is continually seeking to provoke him prior to his public ministry. And we see in verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. It's almost as if he thinks he owns it, you know, the way it's written. It's almost as if he brings Jesus up and shows him everything, the landscape, all the civilizations of the world, all the accomplishments that are aligned to the spirit of the Tower of Babel. And the devil says to him in verse 9, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now the tone this time is very different from the first two because like I said, it's interesting, isn't it? The first time, when he tells Jesus to turn the stones into bread, he uses a tone of command. He says to, to Jesus, command them. And he's not asking in, uh, in hope. He's not asking politely. He's actually commanding the audacity of the devil, as I mentioned earlier. He says to Jesus in the tone of a command, I command you to turn these stones into loaves of bread. And secondly, when he challenges Jesus to throw himself down, as it is written, the angels will come and protect you. It is also in the tone of a command, the audacity of the devil to think that he can command the living son of God to do something. Because we see that happening again in verse 6b when he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And the word throw is in the, the, the form of an imperative. He commands Jesus, the son of God, throw yourself down. But here, this final test we see that he's a bit more persuasive. He doesn't command Jesus anymore. 
He knows it doesn't work. He's exposed his condemned state anyway. But he says to Jesus, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, I would argue that though these, this third one may be the most polite, most diplomatic offer, it is, however, the most perverse provocation of the devil. He is asking the divine to worship him. And he thinks that it is possible by sweetening the deal and saying, I'll give you everything on this earth. You want to talk about bringing the kingdom of heaven on earth? It's already yours for the taking. It will be all yours. You will be the king. Perhaps you don't even need to die on the cross. Don't need to go all the way. But then Jesus replies, and if in the first two challenges, he says, it is written, it is written. He's stating this is the significance of God's written word and it stands firm to the present time as it does today. Now he issues a command to Satan for the first time. In verse 10, Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan. And that is a command. Leave my presence. For it is written, and Jesus is again as consistent as he is, it stands written that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now this, this passage that he quotes, this verse is actually taken also from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. And the background to this verse is very significant for us, you know, because as Jesus was just being promised all the kingdoms of the world in their glory and their pomp and prosperity, the passage that Jesus quotes here when he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve, is taken from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, whereby Moses reminds the people that as they come to inherit the promised land with all of its riches, with all of its homes that were already well built, that's something that they didn't have to start from scratch, they were to remain faithful only to the Lord. It was already given to them, but recognize that there is only one Lord, and only Him, Yahweh, shall you serve. It is the opposite whereby the devil says, you serve me, I'll give it to you. And Jesus recognized the perverseness of this provocation when he tells the devil, get, get out. Because this is, I may argue, despite being the most diplomatic offer of the three, without the imperative command, but it is the most perverse provocation. And Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. The life of Christ for us in this season of Lent must always be at the centre. It cannot be overstated. The example of Christ during this season of Lent is the ultimate paradigm for every follower of Jesus Christ. Of course, we go and follow Christ even beyond the season of Lent, but particularly in this time of Lent, where it is so intentional, where we reflect together as one universal church on how the life of Christ is not characterized primarily by all that power and supernatural experiences which the devil says must be at the center, as he is challenging Jesus right now. But all these are complementary to the ultimate paradigm of sacrifice and obedience to the Father's will. For us as followers of Jesus Christ, 
we need to be aware of the devil's tricks. It all starts in the mind as I grew up to remember this teaching. If you believe that Jesus Christ primarily came to show you fabulous acts of miracles, material blessing, then you would struggle to accept why Jesus goes against the devil this way. Why couldn't he have just turned stone into bread, just showed him the power that he has when he jumps from the pinnacle of the temple and still survives it and said to the devil, see, I can do it. But he doesn't even entertain the thought because his only priority is to do the will of God the Father and it is that to save the world through his act, his vicarious suffering on the cross, to take away the sin of the world. Obedience trumps performance. Obedience is more important even than a kind of showing off of public ministry. For those of us who have been following the news, we talk about a recently passing evangelical leader who has shocked the world with uh, things that have come up after his death. Many people are so troubled and discouraged. They'll be thinking, how is it possible for someone who is so articulate in the Christian faith, seems so genuine, so capable, how could he have fallen this far? But there's nothing new, isn't it? Because the measure of a Christian in discipleship is not how competent you are. It's not how flamboyant or charismatic you are. It's not about how you're able to, to, to give so much resources and even in a way which people may say, wow, that is miraculous, the way you're doing things. It's not possible. But the true measure is a life surrendered wholly to the Lord. And that is the paradigm, the model of Jesus. Made possible only through a heart that is supernaturally convicted in the help of the Holy Spirit. So even though this passage is very familiar to us, it hits at the core of discipleship even in this season of Lent. That never are we ever to be like the devil, to think that the Son of God or the way of the Christian life, the way of Christ, has to be peppered with all of these outside appearances and performances of what people think religion should be today, whether it be in conservative circles or more Pentecostal circles or even in more humanitarian circles. The ultimate test is to do all these things, charity, healing, teaching, knowing more about God, loving Him, all through the experience undergirded by obedience. This season of Lent, my prayer for all of you, myself included, is that we will never lose sight of that. That this season of Lent is not about introspection for the sake of feeling holy, but it is a true investigation of our life. Not by how many sermons I preach, not by how many hours you have put into the church recording the services, not by how much finance you are given, even sacrificially to the point that you don't have. It's about are you obedient? Do you do this out of obedience? Is your life yielded to the Lord in obedience? As the Son of God Himself yielded Himself to the Father we know that at the end of this passage in verse 11, the devil leaves him. 
The presence of God, the Spirit, is still with him. Eh? We see from the very beginning eh? that, the, that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. So he was not just dumb there and says, you're on your own. No, we find that it is still the presence of God. He himself is divine. And we find that as the devil is not omnipresent, as the devil is not omniscient, as the devil is not omnipotent, Jesus is all of that instead. And the angels come at the end of this test to minister to him, to launch him into public ministry, to show us the way of life through the cross. Brothers and sisters in Christ, my prayer for you as we now prepare ourselves to remember God's sacrifice through Jesus on the cross in the Holy Communion is that we will yield to him. Bring all aspects of your life to him this season of Lent. Don't leave any stone unturned. Don't let there be any skeletons in your closet. Bring it all to him and say, God, I yield to you. I yield to you. Change me. Let us pray. Father, we are challenged by the life of your son, Jesus because only he alone has shown true faithfulness and obedience in doing your will, even to the point of death on the cross. He is glorified, seated at the right hand of yours in heaven because of his obedience to you. And he has given us life because of that. And your church, O oh God, is called during this season of Lent to not only be grateful, but to be enabled by the Holy Spirit to live out that life of obedience and being yielded to you. Not just in our actions, not just in our words, but even in our very thoughts. So help us, we pray. We know this is only possible through the work of your Holy Spirit. We yield to you. We ask, O oh God, that during this season of Lent, your church will shine with the fire of the Holy Spirit. So help us, O oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.